Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Carrie Johnson. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. Today, we're joined by principal analyst Peter Wanamaker to discuss the next generation of financial services. Welcome, Peter. Thank you very much. Great to be here. So, Peter, maybe a simple question. How would you define the next generation of financial services? What do we mean by that? So it's a it's a good question. It's a it's a big question. Um, so there's a lot of different variables at play when you think about the next generation of financial services. And in fact, Forrester, me and my team within Forrester have written a number of research reports around looking at the future of financial services, the future of banking. I'm going to zero in on one piece of that, but an incredibly important piece of that, um, which is one aspect of next generation financial services is what we call autonomous finance. And there are other aspects of next generation financial services, um, things like embedded financial services, uh, which are getting a lot of hype right now with good reason, frankly, um, that will only be possible by virtue of autonomous finance. Um, so there's there's some overlap here. Some of the things we're going to talk about are not mutually exclusive from other shifts in financial services. But but to zero in on, on what I what our research has looked at for this particular podcast, um, what we call autonomous finance, we define as algorithm-driven services that make financial decisions or take action on decisions on a customer's behalf, which at first blush doesn't necessarily sound like a seismic shift, right? Um, There are little pieces of this. And and in fact, we would argue that there are leading indicators uh, out there that sort of show sort of give glimpses of of what the next generation looks like and what autonomous finance looks like down the road and how it will evolve over the next, frankly, we think based on our research, you know, 10 years or so. Um, but it is, it's a big shift. If you think about the past, certainly past 20 years, but I would argue the past 100 years of financial services, it's really been about, and again, this goes back to not just last century, but a little bit into the century before that, right into the 1800s, where financial providers would create and then give, deliver to customers stuff, products, services, et cetera, that let them, that let that the customer make decisions and take action to save their money, hold their money, spend their money, um, you know, uh, insure their assets and insurance, of course, invest their money, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's a really a fundamental shift to say we or we a certain financial provider or we a set of financial providers, or it might actually be other companies as well, will actually make decisions for you, make financial decisions for you, and then under certain circumstances, take action on those decisions. That's a that's a big shift, right? Uh, to make sort of a stupid analogy about it that I've used a couple times, um, it's a little bit like you know, for for 100 plus years, banks, wealth management companies, insurers have been building better mousetraps, and now they're offering to catch the mice for you, right? Only it's much more digital and scalable than that. But yes, even something like a robo advisor which I think was maybe an earlier generation of what you're calling pieces of autonomous finance, which was giving the advice portion, but it wasn't taking action. Is that the core difference? Actually, robo-advisors do take action. I would would actually call, it's a a great question. So robo-advisors are one of the things we can point to that are sort of ahead of their time. 
Um, now, robo-advisors, if you look at their place in the market, they have not taken over everything, right? Um, they have proven that there was an appetite for much lower cost. That's not that shocking. And for algorithm-driven investment. Um, so I, I would call them a, a sneak preview. So you're absolutely right about that. They actually are one of those really rare examples where um, so they're, they're only one niche part of, of the financial services landscape, but they are making decisions and taking action um, in under certain circumstances. Um, so robo-advisors are what we would call a leading indicator of this. And so what's happening now to make this possible or, you know, sort of leaning in with a robo-advisor example, like what is going to be taking it to the next level um, and having this be a, something that's, you know, commonplace? Yeah, so it's, it's some of the, I mean, the, the driving forces here, or what's enabling this actually, um, are a lot of the same factors and forces that are at play in other areas, right? So um, maturing technologies, right? Um, and in some cases, emerging technologies that didn't exist before or were terrible before, didn't do it. And and some of the stuff that even is, is fundamental sort of, for lack of a better word, a prerequisite for those technologies. So computing power, right? The increase, the dramatic increase in computing power you know, someone might have been able to design an algorithm that optimized people's debt repayment uh, 50 years ago. I imagine someone someone could have done that. The problem was they didn't have access to huge amounts of data and they didn't have access to the per computing power that companies and AI systems now have access to. So that's a big piece of it. That should not be, you know, as with many shifts that Forrester looks at, um, the technology is not where you should start, right? You should not be designing around that technology, but that technology, the shifts in technology are what's enabling this, um, which brings me to a, a sort of, you didn't ask this exactly, but I'll answer it is, um, I do not think, and, and our research doesn't show that this is a kind of new demand, right? So what I mean by that is the idea that people want help managing their finances without having to deal with the hassle of thinking about their finances. I mean, Humans have, for better or worse, let's be honest, probably for worse for the most part, have an inertia problem when it comes to managing their finances. And so the idea that uh, a company or a service could could automate that for you and, and that people would want that and even be willing to pay for that, that's not new, I don't think at all. Can we dig into trust for a sec? You have good data in here in the research that you wrote on whether or not consumers across generations sort of feel that they're, I don't know if it's, if I'm interpreting it right, but willing to use a sort of automated investment manager. I thought it was shockingly low, but you see opportunity. So talk to me about that. I actually think that, so the lowness goes back to the point I made earlier, right? So you said, uh, you asked earlier about robo-advisors and I said they were a leading indicator, but they're one of those weird sort of rare prototypes that really shows kind of the full you know, they, they are not automating every part of a person's financial life, but they're, they are making decisions and taking actions entirely based on proprietary algorithms, um, their, their execution level. So, you know, uh, I think that they are a, 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 a glimpse of the future, or one piece of the future. Um, but you're right. Interest in and trust in automated investment managers, robo-advisors, is pretty low for, for all generations and for all segments around the world. Um, and I, I think that simply reflects humans' natural concern, caution around something they don't understand. Um, so one piece of data that we have in there 
that's outside. So my colleague, Olivia Burdak and I, when we were uh, developing this research, we looked outside of financial services. Um, and we found some ones that aren't surprising to us in 2020, um, but probably would have surprised someone uh, 10 years ago or certainly 20 years ago, which is that a majority of Americans now trust an algorithm more than they trust their fellow human beings when it comes to getting walking or driving directions. And I am I won't speak for either of you, but I, I'm absolutely in that majority, right? I'm it's it's 55% uh, to be exact. Um, I trust Google Maps more than I trust, you know, dude on the street or my wife for that matter for telling me which way to go. And um, yeah, but when these when mapping technologies first came out, when those algorithms and and just to be clear, when we ask that question, we don't just say algorithm because a lot of people don't know what that is. We I, I can share with any audience member who wants to, to contact us exactly what the survey question was. We had to kind of explain what, what we meant. Um, but that I think is a, that is an indicator of how much trust can shift when a set of services proves their value. So by the way, just to, to circle back to your, 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 your specific question, if robo-advisors fail to help people achieve better financial outcomes, then they will not be trusted, and that will undermine. I think it will undermine broad, more broadly autonomous financial services or autonomous finances. Um, I, I think more than likely, more likely than not, that won't happen. Um, but even if it did, I think it would simply slow the growth in trust, right? Um, but that trust is absolutely essential. And one last point here, very quickly, is if you look at the data we have around trust in really every kind of autonomous finance. Um, it looks like, so, so I often talk about different kinds of ski slopes when we're looking at age-based um, adoption and usage of different um, tools. Uh, it looks like a pretty steep ski slope, right? Maybe not black diamond, but like a blue square. It's a solid um, blue. Yeah, it's a solid blue. Um, and so, you know, I think it's something like, I mean, younger millennials and Gen Zers are something like four or five X compared to, and I don't just mean folks, you know, in their 80s, folks over 60, they're, they're somewhere like four or five X over that. Um, so uh, in terms of their trust in, in robo-advisors specifically, but in other areas of autonomous finance as well. What struck me about it, and you're starting to get at it too, is that in the definition of autonomous finance are much simpler, lower risk yes. tasks and actions that I think would be worth going into, that it would be much easier to get a customer to adopt and also very hard at the same time to explain something that doesn't exist today. That's right. Yeah. I mean, that, and, and that gets into, I mean, a lot of our research at Forrester looks at what you might call latent demand, which is things that, you know, someone doesn't know what they want until they see it, or at least many people don't. Right. And I, I could, we could talk about the, the famous, you know, uh, iPod quip from, from Steve Jobs and things like that, that they don't know what they want. They just want a smaller disc man. It's very difficult to describe something, one, that doesn't exist, and two, that people don't know that they're going to need. And the point of that whole point is to talk about what are the types of services that we're talking about with autonomous finance outside of robo-advising, which frankly has a little bit of a higher risk associated, maybe, than some of the other types of actions that could be taken by an algorithm. It, so it does. A lot of people use them for only one piece of their financial life, right? So I, I don't know that we have this exact data point, but I, I, we certainly have data showing that very few people or probably almost no one 
has said, I'm going to put all of my money, especially people that have a fair amount of assets, into robo-advisors, right? Because there is a high risk there. So we've identified a number of different areas of autonomous finance that are easier for people to get their head around, uh, consumers that is, and areas of their financial lives that they're more willing to try out, experiment with, especially younger people, though not exclusively younger people. So if you look at things like um, choosing a credit card, so there's a Swedish fintech firm called Ebel that has you know, a proprietary algorithm that lets you, based on your spending and financial behavior, uh, find the right card. Effortless card finder is, is their value prop. Um, lets you find it, right? So this is, you know, they're not even replacing the credit card. They're simply automating the process of shopping for that credit card. They're doing more than just a, a credit card marketplace, right? Uh, although it has elements of that as well. But what they're doing is they're saying, listen, we built a proprietary algorithm specifically for this based on your individual needs. And we'll, you know, we will we will take the effort out of that, take the friction, take the cognitive load off of you end user. So that's that's a sort of example I would point to that, that's a really an easy kind of gateway into autonomous finance for some consumers. Um, there's an insurance firm out of the UK, Anorak. And their value prop is, we'll, and I think this is a quote directly from them, we'll do the maths for you, right? They say maths because they're crazy and British, um, but they'll do the maths for you to choose the right insurance that fits you and your needs, right? So again, it's it's autonomous finance, but it's a, a little, um, it doesn't put really any of your assets at risk, right? Yes, you're choosing insurance or choosing a credit card, which could have some, but you're still choosing it from a variety of providers that are established, chartered, you know, either banks, lenders, insurance companies, et cetera. To take this one step further, there are some areas that we see, again, that, that aren't as fully, that, that you're not taking as big a risk as you are with uh, digital investment managers, robo-advisors, but that you're that you're going a little step beyond, you know, Anorak or uh, Ebel. Um, so there are some firms like uh, Trezio out of Ireland. So this is, a, a, you know, it's essentially a, a smaller firm. Their focus, so a lot of their marketing is around their segment, their target segment, which is independent workers, right? So uh, what in many parts of the world are gig economy workers, as well as traditional freelancers, et cetera. So they offer a number of different tools, many of them automated, not all of them, but many of them automated that provide the value prop is really financial stability for independent workers. So Trezio offers things like automated top-ups, um, income smoothing that's automated, um, personal accident insurance. Um, and I, I'll stop here quickly and point out their revenue models and business models look a lot different than traditional banking providers, or many of them do. So Trezio, again, the Irish uh, fintech firm, has a weekly membership fee rather than charging based on transaction fees or uh, based on you know, net interest margins or things like that. Um, so we're seeing a, a number of those that, that think about autonomous finance, but get into it in a, in a way that's a little bit easier for a consumer, an end user, to get their head around and be willing to try out. So you're naming a lot of, you know, startup B or smaller firms, like how are some of the larger firms playing in this space? Is it more been an acquisition game for them? Um, you know, sort of a build their own tech, like how is that playing out with those larger firms? There's a couple of ways. So number one is they're, they're buying or investing in the startups that I'm mentioning. 
Um, and that's, that's a big part of it. Or some of them are doing what we at Forrester sometimes call digital ventures, digital subsidiaries. Um, so we see a mix of that, right? We're even seeing regional banks, regional financial providers, um, for example, Fifth Third uh, in the US, um, you know, their head of digital, Melissa Stevens, has talked about their fintech investment strategy. So they are they are focusing on that, not exclusively about autonomous finance, but autonomous finance is a big part of that. Uh, likewise, there's a, a autonomous finance company in Australia called Uno. Uh, it does mortgages, right? So it actively manages your home loans for you. Um, they're they are uh, majority owned by Westpac. So the the short answer to your question is. Most big firms are pursuing autonomous finance primarily, though not exclusively, primarily through investments in smaller startups, fintech, et cetera, or by acquiring uh, fintech startups, et cetera. You gave an example in the report and in your research of auto ordering groceries as an example, which got me thinking, and I'm sure you get this question all the time, to the point of annoyance of is you know is amazon or one of the other platforms going to come in and be the actual facilitator of autonomous finance or will it be banks and startups and i got to put a big dose of cynicism on the startups as the <laughs> as the maybe as the engine or as the ones that develop features and technology but probably not as the trusted brand you are right carrie that big tech firms and frankly, just some other non, non-banks, non-financial institutions, right? So including, by the way, manufacturers, like the folks who are making refrigerators, um, a lot of folks that, that are developing the digital ecosystem, building the hardware, building the software, et cetera, th- those folks are going to have a, a big advantage here. Looking specifically at the connected refrigerator, looking directly at the example from the, the future use case of the connected refrigerator, we do not think that any financial services firm should be a customer facing brand in that scenario. What we're talking about there is really another part of next generation financial services, which we call embedded finance. Um, so autonomous finance services will sometimes, but not always, sometimes be embedded in other ecosystems, other platforms, um, embedded in literally you know, other devices. Uh, so the connected refrigerator is one of those examples. So it will not be a startup or a financial services, a traditional financial services brand that the customer is thinking about when they utilize that service in their connected refrigerator. Instead, it is an opportunity to automate one piece of that, which is the payment mechanism and part of perhaps the comparison shopping, right? So um, that's, a, that's a piece of it that we write about in that research report. So I think that's the, the big takeaway is some aspects, some areas of autonomous finance will be really machine to machine financial services, machine-to-machine payments, machine-to-machine lending. And in those cases, it will be the, the, the financial services companies, be they startups or traditional firms, won't be the customer-facing brand. We've talked before on this podcast and in other places where, you know, where are you establishing the relationship with the customer? And are you becoming the just merely the pipes? Um or, you know, the customer facing entity, you know, is that sort of a direction that you're seeing as we go into more potentially connected home embedded type examples that you just gave? 
Yeah, so a couple things on that. So one, everyone wants to be, or everyone thinks they want to be the customer-facing brand, uh, especially these days where it's, it's, it's you know, and, and to be fair, I mean, there's, there's good reason for that. That said, by definition, not everyone can be, or at least by definition in a, in a layered ecosystem, uh, not everyone can be. And our research shows you don't have to be the customer-facing brand to drive sustained growth over multiple business cycles, right? Um, now, it means you'll have to do something else, right? You, you, there is a risk of being a dumb pipe. There's disc, a risk of being commoditized. Um, and financial services companies have really never had to deal with that in the way they do uh, looking into the next 10 years, 15 years. Um, so they should be worried, right? And I think there's the biggest problem will be if you are a financial services company who unwittingly becomes an invisible part of someone else's ecosystem, someone else's platform, that's a major problem. They're your, you know, your margins are at risk, your relevance is at risk, your future growth is at risk, and you should be, you should be worried about that if you are an executive at a bank or at a wealth management firm or at an insurer. Um, that said, I do think there's a role to play for financial services companies, and I'm intentionally not just saying traditional firms, but various financial service companies, um, incumbents as well as fintechs and startups, um, where they aren't always the customer-facing brand. Um, and in fact, I think we identify some of those in the autonomous finance research, such as being an autonomous payments company that is embedded in various connected devices. And I'll give one quick example of this. So Fin, not the um, uh, dearly departed um, neobank brand out of Chase, but Fin, uh, which is a subsidiary of ING uh, in the Netherlands. So Fin is a Internet of, Internet of Things payments and banking service and company, really a subsidiary. Um, Finn is betting on autonomous, uh, autonomous finance and autonomous payments, lending, banking being necessary and being a, 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 a really a borderline ubiquitous part of our consumers or consumers' future lives. And yet it does not think it needs to be the main brand anyone's thinking about, right? I mean, let's put, be really blunt. Amazon, Google, big hardware companies, many big software companies, they don't want to be the lenders and the payment mechanisms. Um, so there is a role to play. And there is one that can be profitable and can see growth uh, over, again, multiple business cycles. To me, that only makes the case that financial services companies should be thinking about autonomous finance not as a pivot they need to make in 2021 but as an area they need to start exploring because it will increasingly need to be part of their growth strategy and frankly, their aspects of their retention strategy, their revenue model, their business model, et cetera. Not as something that is, again, staving off an existential threat that's gonna happen in the next six months. We get a lot of questions from our financial services clients and frankly, some folks outside of financial services that are, that are looking at our autonomous finance research is, how COVID-19 changes things. And I'll, I'll, I'll answer that as best I can right now. I mean, it sometimes depends on who I'm talking to. But generally speaking, when I'm you know, talking to executives of financial service companies, the answer is that over the next decade, I actually don't think it changes this research or, or how this will play out significantly. Uh, now, some of that depends if there's a depression level economic issue. Uh, that's, that's a different set of circumstances. Um, Likewise, I mean, I, I don't pretend, I'm not an epidemiologist, so I don't pretend to know how the, the, the disease itself will play out. But 
putting aside those some some sort of extreme scenarios, um, you know, I, I think that what we're seeing in terms of technology enabling autonomous finance and frankly better autonomous finance, right, improving uh, companies' ability to offer autonomous finance to customers, I think that'll play out over the next decade or so roughly the same way it would have absent COVID-19. When we look at the effect of COVID-19 on autonomous finance in the nearer term, what we see is that certain areas of people's financial lives, I think they'll be more cautious about, and they will actually resist, right? So adoption of autonomous finance will actually be slightly sort of artificially dampened uh, other than it would relative to a world without COVID-19. Um, other areas, and a lot of those are sort of niche areas of people's lives that are a um, little bit easier to enter into, right? The, the stakes are lower. Um, the, the steps needed to take to get into it are, are, are easier or more straightforward. Uh, I think they'll actually be higher, right? People will be looking for something that makes their lives easier. They don't have to stress and, and can remove a little bit of that anxiety. I'll give one example of that, which is autonomous bill pay. So there are firms like PayRails with a Z um, uh, out of the U.S., right? Um, so they their whole thing is a do-it-for-me option for payments. And I think they will, I don't know about them as an individual company, but that area of autonomous finance will see some gains because unlike, you know, an automated personal financial assistant, right, which is a big holistic uh, uh, really sort of big forward thinking kind of idea in autonomous finance. Instead, what we're thinking, this is sort of one aspect of your financial lives, of your financial life that gets a little bit easier by virtue of someone, an algorithm, uh, making decisions and taking action for you. So Peter, we just talked about, you know, some of the dynamics at play with COVID, um, some things maybe, you know, dampening the adoption of autonomous finance, but in some cases accelerating. And certainly we've seen firms, not just in financial services, but across the board, making massive investments in digital and accelerating the digital efforts. As a financial services leader, kind of looking at the cards on the table, what does that mean for preparing for the next step? for you know, autonomous finance and interactions with customers and consumers um, in the next year, five, 10 years? Yeah, so um, our, our advice to financial services companies looking at autonomous finance and, and looking at how to, how to be successful and, and drive sustained growth in, if things play out the way we think they will, uh, based on our research, um, is a mix of some fun and exciting stuff that you get to do where you get to brainstorm and ideate areas where you can you know, uh, tap into latent demand for customers and some areas that are, I still think, interesting, but maybe not as fun, a little more tedious that get into things like data infrastructure and stuff like that. Um, so to, to best distill it down for, for this audience, for our audience here, I'll name three things that every company will need to be successful in autonomous finance. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll name each one and then I'll, I'll quickly give you a sense of sort of what, what is required. What's, it, they're really categories more than um, specific capabilities, right? Each has a subset of, of various, again, uh, competencies, capabilities. So the first one is data, which might seem obvious and there's no financial institution in the world that doesn't have mountains of data. Um, what we're really talking about here is do you have a 
have you thought about and mapped out where your data is? And I say your, I mean the data at your disposal that you can use, your customer's data that's from internal as well as third-party sources, uh, data that your customers are giving you permission to utilize from third-party sources, et cetera. Are you thinking about data governance and, and really more importantly, data infrastructure? And to use a term we sometimes use in our, in our advisory work, de-siloing that data. Um, financial services farm, firms are, every company in the world is, has too many silos, That's the, or every big company in the world. Financial service companies over-index on that problem. Um, and so thinking about all those aspects of your data strategy and your data infrastructure are things you'll need to be doing. Um, and it's it, it won't be easy. That's that part. There's going to be some tedium involved, um, and but it, it's going to be necessary. Um, second one, so that's, that's the first one, is the data aspects of this. Then there's algorithms. So the first word in our definition of autonomous finance is algorithm. Um, now, algorithms can be incredibly simple. They can be simple and stupid. They can be simple and elegant and incredibly effective. They can be really complex and effective and, and um, you know, um, really useful. Or they can be really complex and still terrible <laughs> uh, and everything in between. Um, the big question is around, and, and so, yes, some of this gets into machine learning and AI capabilities. Um, the biggest question for every financial service company, as you think about the role algorithms play in your future and in autonomous finance, is which algorithms you own and which ones you don't. And there's a lot more in the second category than the first, right? There's a lot more you don't own than you do, uh, and a lot fewer that you create and build. Um, so, you know, I, I always point out natural language processing, NLP is something where there's really no financial services company in the world that should be developing their own NLP, right? That's that's very, that is a poor use of your resources. Um, and there's lots of other uh, technologies and algorithms that you shouldn't be focused on and building out yourself. But there are some you want to. And those proprietary algorithms are often going to be the difference between uh, competitive advantage and, and potentially major growth and um, you know just getting by and being sort of a com commodity brand. So that's number two, so data, algorithms. And then the third one is a new approach, frankly, to strategy and road mapping, right? So Forrester uh, has written some reports about dynamic road mapping in banking, um, but I think we can expand that to really multiple areas of financial services. Really, I would argue all financial services companies should be thinking about how they can have a systematic approach. And yes, it, I'm talking about things like agile, things like design thinking. Uh, various frameworks and, and tools at your disposal that enable dynamism, but ways that let you continuously explore, measure, that's one that often gets missed, and iterate, and then sort of see where your customers uh, benefit most and, and where they show the most demand for autonomous finance services. So those are three big things. Uh, they're not easy, uh, but those are the things we recommend that every financial service company should be like, thinking about. Great. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.